Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. A whole lot going on in the United States, and we're going to start on that with Fran Coombs, our good friend who walked us through or led us through the entire election campaign, which led to the November the 8th election of Donald Trump as president of the United States and uh, longtime editor of the Washington Times and now the managing editor of Rasmussen Reports, national polling firm in the United States. So gets uh, understands the situation from the news perspective and from the public opinion perspective. Fran, it's great to have you back on the show. Always a pleasure, Roy. So how significant is the development involving Michael Flynn? And is this, as some people have suggested, the domino that opens the gates to Pennsylvania Avenue and will park Mr. Mueller right in front of the Oval Office? Well, I think I think there's no question that, the, as, as you said in your in your uh, introduction there, that uh, the left is emboldened by this. Uh, but in my reading of all the stories, I mean, I just don't I, I don't see a, a there there. I mean, there's no question that Flynn lied to the FBI, I and mean, he's admitted that. But uh, basically, the instructions that Trump gave him uh, were told was basically after he was we were in the transition. Trump had been elected president. He said, "Let's reach out to the Russians and see if we can work together on some things, including fighting ISIS." Uh, they, we still don't have any facts yet that show uh, collusion with the Russians to tinker with the U.S. election, which is, uh, if your listeners recall, is how this whole thing started. Yeah. Now, was this? This um, decision made by the the president and passed on to Michael Flynn was this done post election or pre election? Well, I mean, what ABC News Brian Ross broke broke yesterday initially that candidate Trump had instructed Flynn to meet with the Russians, uh, but now, but within a couple hours, NBC had to very embarrassingly release a, a do a correction on air, saying that uh, no, no, our sources now tell us that Flynn says that. President-elect Trump during the transition period said for us to reach out to the Russians uh, and see if there's some areas we can work together. Uh, that is no violation of any law whatsoever. And um, to me, uh, I mean, I think to most people that look at this, try to look at this thing independently, uh, is, is common sense. It's what you would hope a president-elect would try to do. So, Fran, maybe we should ask for your, your assessment of what's the best-case scenario What's the worst-case scenario for, for the Republican Party here? Well, I mean, undoubtedly, the worst-case scenario is, is that Flynn either fingers President Trump or leads uh, Mueller's team to someone who can finger Trump and can show that he absolutely, during the election campaign, uh, during the presidential campaign, had nefarious dealings with the Russians. Uh, that's, that's the worst-case scenario for the Republicans, best-case scenario for the Democrats. Uh, but uh, on the basis of what we've seen so far, I think the, the best-case scenario for the Republicans is what we're seeing so far, which is a Kelly gets nailed for lying to the FBI, a Manafort gets nailed for uh, illegal business dealings. But meanwhile, none of these things, uh, other than you know, guilt by association, none of those things splash on the president. And if it does splash on the president, are we looking at a, at a Rich, Richard Nixon scenario, potentially? Well, I mean, yes, uh, but I mean, I think that's a real reach, Roy. I mean, you know, we, I mean, we can say that about anything. I mean, we could we could say the same thing about uh, 
Justin Trudeau that, yes, if this happened and this happened and this happened, that he could be looking at a Richard Nixon scenario. But we are a long, long, long way from that. So this is this is just the beginning of, of Mueller's uh, sort of the, the, not a, not his public investigation, but the first domino to publicly fall. Do you think that it, you understand the workings of Washington and 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 how the political game is played? Do you think that he has a lot more that uh, that Flynn was just somebody he wanted to trot out as the first example of? Uh, that that he could, and so he cut Flynn a, a deal for the public relations value. Well, I think he he did both Manafort and Flynn because they're the low hanging fruit. Right. I mean, they're the they're the ones that have been in the news. Uh, they're the ones that basically were easy to get indictments on. Uh, so yes, he did that because also his his investigation has been criticized for being very partisan. Uh, there have been you know obviously it's a very expensive thing. Uh, Trump and his people have dismissed the whole Russian collusion thing as a fairy tale. Uh, so yes, he needed to he needed to do something, uh, and these are indictments that he can clearly get. I mean, Flynn did lie to the FBI. There's no doubt about it. He's pled guilty to it now. Um, but you know, it's a big leap, uh, not for some in our media, unfortunately, but it's a big leap to go from that to the fact that Michael Flynn can finger President Trump breaking the law. It's interesting you say that it's not a great leap for some people in media, and I've certainly seen that, as, you, as have you, as have many other people, that there, the, there are people on the left side of the spectrum and the mainstream media who've already uh, have Donald Trump leaving the White House. Now, uh, what do you think that Americans are going to say? How will Americans respond and react to the news that they received yesterday? Uh, I'm sure you're going to be polling them. Uh, what do you expect to, to get back? Well, I expect, we polled right after Paul Manafort was indicted, uh, which was, I guess, what, two or three weeks ago. And I, and I expect pretty much the same thing. What you're going to see is that Democrats go, yes, this leads directly to President Trump. Republicans and unaffiliated voters, most of them go, no, it doesn't. Uh, I mean, you and I have talked about this many times on your show. I mean, anything that you connect Trump to, the Democrats are overwhelmingly uh, going to take them, have the most negative assessment of it possible. Republicans are going to be more positive about it, and the unaffiliated voters will be kind of in the middle. Um, so I, I, that's fully what I expect. I mean, meanwhile, we've got this tax bill that passed, which looks like looks like Trump now is on his way to a, a major legislative victory, and which also includes, by the way, the repeal of the Obamacare uh, health insurance mandate, which most Americans continue to oppose. Uh, so that's real, you know, that's real action that the Republicans in Congress have finally done. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that's going to help Trump. I think this, Kelly, I mean, look, the Democrats are going to try to keep the Russia story alive as long as they possibly can because, sad to say, they really have no agenda other than we are not Donald Trump. Does Robert Mueller have a finite period of time to investigate, or is he free to investigate as long as he chooses to. He, he pretty much can go on. I mean, these special prosecutors are a real, I mean, can be a, are a real drain on the taxpayers. I mean, he can keep going indefinitely. And, and Fran, how much, of a, how much of an impact have previous special prosecutors had in the United States on the investigations they were conducting? How, how, how significant has their, has, has their, have their findings been? Yeah, well, I mean, some have done. I mean, the most, the, the one that I think most people think tend to think of is the the Bill Clinton, Ken Starr investigation. Right. And again, you know, that got that got some minor people. It got Trump. I mean, it got Clinton. 
Um, there, there were so many lawsuits around Clinton. I, you know, I, I apologize for not being clear on this, but I know that at one point he lost his his license to practice law for five years. He had to do an out of court settlement with one of the women who accused him. Um, he was, of course, impeached over the Monica Lewinsky thing, but that was not really uh, at the heart of uh, Starr's investigation. Um, so I'm not sure at the end of the day, after all the stuff that came out on Clinton, that really Ken Starr made much of a difference. Yeah, it's amazing to me that Clinton is still as a public a figure and still as, um, by his supporters anyway, respected a public figure as, as he is, given everything that, that he's that well, he's he, been involved he, in. I mean, we polled on that actually this week, and the majority of people, uh, including a sizable plurality of uh, Democrats, now say that they believe the women who made uh, allegations, sexual allegations against Clinton, and that's that's a change right there. Because if you you know going back in the '90s, most Democrats didn't buy into that. They thought that you know they and uh, Hillary Clinton, of course, was denouncing those women right and left, and um, most Democrats didn't buy that at all. They thought that that Clinton was totally the victim of a right wing conspiracy, uh, and now no nobody buys that anymore. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Fran Coombs with me from Rasmussen Reports, Rasmussen Polling, also former editor of The Washington Times. Uh, Fran, the issue of the, the tax bill, this huge tax bill that the, that the Republicans, Republicans were able to get through the Senate, uh, what is the significance of that overall? I mean, a great win for J- Donald Trump. And I find it interesting that on the day they knew that more than likely the tax bill was going to pass, uh, Michael Flynn was trotted out as having lied to the FBI. But that specific tax bill, what's the impact on, on the country? Well, well, I think the, the larger impact, Roy, is really a psychological one. It's, it's, it's PR. I mean, the whole the whole media scenario this year has been Trump and the congressional Republicans cannot work together to deliver anything. Now they've passed this major tax reform, uh, you know, the biggest reform we've had in our tax code in years. And, and the tax code, I'm sure it's the same in your country, is basically one that is basically universally derided. It's, you know, people just basically hate paying taxes. And so anything that that smacks of cutting taxes, changing it, make the ch- making it less onerous to do your taxes, et cetera, et cetera, uh, has good public relations value. So I think for the Republicans and Trump, first and foremost, it's a big win. Uh, I think economically, it's going to be it's going to encourage the U.S. economy even more. Uh, so I think that's going to be a big win. And I think you know when when people see that, when they have more money in their pocket, when the stock market's going even up even further, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think all of these things will ultimately benefit the Republicans next fall. Yeah, may we also have a significant tax cut in this country because our tax rates are over the top, and people are. Uh, yeah, I mean, the rich are finding ways now to uh, to beat the taxes. We were talking about that last weekend on the show. Let's uh, get your thoughts on this uh, situation out of San Francisco. Kate Steinle um, shot with a stolen handgun, and Jose Inez Garcia Zarate. Uh, five times, I think he he was he entered the yeah, United States five illegally times. five yeah. times, and so now he was found not guilty in in a uh, in a, um, a sanctuary city in in San Francisco, infuriating people across the country, and an arrest warrant was issued by the Department of Justice. What's going on with this? Well, I mean, the thing that amazed me is that they didn't even find him guilty of involuntary manslaughter. 
which is, in other words, in essence, that he killed the woman accidentally. I mean, they didn't even—he wasn't even found guilty there. Um, I just think you have a hyper-liberal city. Um, uh, again, I didn't follow every stage of that trial, but I'm sure he was per- portrayed as a poor, innocent victim and the victim of racism, et cetera, et cetera. I'm sure Trump's name was dropped numerous times in front of the jury. Um, again, I mean, I, th- I think this this will reconfirm a lot of people's prejudices. The people that are concerned about illegal immigration will, are outraged by this. The people who don't care about it, uh, sad to say, uh, I, I you know, I'm not sure a lot of the people on the left even followed this trial or even cared about it. Oh. I thought it was just a horrid situation. Oh, it really is. I mean, it's a horrid situation. Yeah, you, know, you just it, your heart just goes out to that poor family. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and uh, I mean the thing, but again, in our political dialogue, unfortunately, what you often see, or what you always see, is it's always the conservatives or Trump or whoever is against immigration, and of course that's not it at all. They're against illegal immigration, but that 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 word illegal always gets dropped in the political debate so that it looks like. You know, they're haters, and, you know, hey, we're a nation of immigrants, and these people are against immigration, and blah, 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 and which is not true at all. They're not opposed to immigration. They are opposed to people who break the law and come into this country illegally. Oh, yeah. Same refrain here. It's the same refrain here with the right. same political combatants making the same points. Um, Russ, uh, Fran, I'm sorry, in the time that we have left, uh, when I, let me just go back to Robert Mueller for a moment. Who investigates the investigator? Yeah, sad to say, no one does. This uh, this this special prosecutor creature, you know, was created, uh, and people thought, oh, okay, he'll be politically neutral. He's not a creature of either party, but of course, that never happens. And they these guys can spend unlimited money, and they basically get away with murder. And again, who made uh, the decision that there should be this investigation taking place? Yeah, well, this was, it was basically, it came out of the Justice Department, as I recall. Mm-hmm. And uh, because Sessions was, ju- this story was, you know, the pressure was on, uh, and Sessions, as you recall, recused himself to, right. to Trump's great anger. Right. Uh, and they did it because they said, hey, look, people will think that our investigation would not be neutral, so we need to have an independent prosecutor. Okay, and we have about 10 seconds. What happens to Tillerson? He stays on. Yeah. Powerful He's man. not going anywhere. Yeah. Fran, thank you so much. I really appreciate the time. Always a pleasure, Roy. You take care. All the best to you. Fran Coombs from Rasmussen Reports. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. There were some incredible exchanges between uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and Conservative leader Andrew Scheer this week in Parliament. Mr. Speaker, CSIS warned the Liberal government all the way back in 2015 that returning ISIS fighters were a continuing and real threat to Canada. They warned that Canadian citizens were recruited by ISIS, quote, not because they needed more foot soldiers, but because they want to teach the Westerners to take the struggle into every neighborhood and subway back home. So ISIS specifically trained Canadian fighters to come back here and terrorize our community. And the Liberals knew about it for over two years. So why is the Prime Minister so focused on reintegration services and not putting these people in jail? 
Honourable Prime Minister. Mr. Speaker, this government, like all governments, takes uh, extremely seriously the safety of Canadians, and that's why everything we do is focused on keeping Canadians safe. And we know uh, that a society uh, that uh, is, is safe is one in which uh, we are uh, using a broad range of tools to keep Canadians safe. Yes, we have enforcement, surveillance, and national security tools uh, that we use to a significant degree, but we also have uh, methods of uh, uh, de-emphasizing or de-programming uh, people who want to harm our society, and that's the things we have to move. Where is this going up? Oh, was that the end of it? Son of a gun! Uh, Michelle Rempel is with us, Conservative Member of Parliament from the Calgary area, city of Calgary. Always good to talk to you, Michelle. What was it like to uh, observe the? or be part of that ex- those, these series of exchanges that have taken place this past week between Mr. Trudeau, who I have no idea how you de-emphasize a, a terrorist, by the way. He'd have to explain that. But what was it like to be part of that? Well, I, I guess it's not so much about me. I, I'm putting myself in the shoes of somebody who has um, survived the violence of ISIS, uh, such as the many Yazidi genocide survivors that are now in Canada, and, you know, to, to hear that and to hear that that's the priority or the first thing that's out of the Prime Minister's mouth after we ask about, you know, bringing people to justice for their crimes and security, I think it's a little, I think it's a little misguided. Yeah, he also brought up the issue of Islamophobia uh, after a question asked by your leader and how he managed to bring Islamophobia into answering a question about how terrorists entering the country are treated, uh, I, I didn't quite understand. Is is the is the mood as confrontational in Parliament as it appears to be to those of us who are observing what's going on in question period, and then hearing comments later on? Um, certainly, it was a hot week in Parliament for sure. Uh, with regard to that particular comment. Um, I, you know, it, for anyone who's listening and, and kind of wants to put this debate and that exchange in context, I encourage them to read a book that was recently released by um, a Yazidi survivor. Her name is Nadia Murad. Um, because she talks about, after surviving some really terrible things, to put it mildly, her desire to... And, and what sustained her at certain points was bringing these people to justice. So when you when you talk about, you know, well, how Canada is treating people that have chosen to go and fight to support the ideology of the perpetrators of genocide, uh, these people are complicit. And our first response as a country should be to reject their ideals, um, to not excuse them away, to re-emphasize that we need to seek justice and then ensure that we're doing so while keeping Canadians safe. Um, I don't really think that that's partisan. I don't think that that's something that there should be debate over. That particular exchange should have been something where it was very calm and fact-based. The Prime Minister should have responded in kind. Um, there's a lack of statesmanship there, but to me that's secondary to the fact that um, completely missing the mark is putting it mildly. Um, there's, there's moments in your life when you have to stand up for what's right and stand against what's wrong. And uh, I think that that was missed 
in that exchange. Yeah. Uh, this prime minister, of course, also in 2015 made it clear that if he were elected to lead the country, he would scrap uh, Bill C-24, which allowed for the removal, the rescinding of Canadian citizenship of uh, a dual citizen who was convicted of a terrorist act. And he went ahead and did that, of course, with Bill C-6. I just don't quite understand sometimes, or generally, what it is that he's, the point he's trying to make to Canada about about terrorists, and in this case, particularly the ISIS members who left this country illegally to go and fight with them. And as you say, there are so many victims, so many thousands and thousands and thousands of victims who suffered horrifically at the hands of this organization to have any kind of uh, interest in the well-being of the returnees without putting them, without creating a... a, a, a a, a quotient of uh, of prison time and, and responsibility is it just it's awful. It really sometimes it defies description. It's awful. Well, and this is why when our former government learned about the threat uh, that and the fact that there were Canadians who were leaving the country uh, or potentially thinking about leaving the country to go and join ISIS, uh, we put in place legislation in 2013. Uh, to make sure that it was very clear from a legislative perspective that it was a crime to attempt to leave the country uh, or leave the country to, to, to essentially join a terrorist organization. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, we also looked at things that can boost up um, our frontline counterterrorism efforts. The, what, you know, we haven't touched on this, but um, really where, where, where that exchange got so heated was when we raised early in the week the fact that um, the government wasn't being entirely forthwith with us on how many people they were surveilling in Canada and what the surveillance activities kind of look like. Um, it, it was funny by saying, well, we're funding this center for, I, I can't even remember the acronym, but essentially uh, saying, you know, we're, we're trying to provide rehabilitation support for, for, for returning ISIS fighters. Later in the week, it was reported that this center, you know, even if you want to discuss reintegration support, which I think a lot of people take sort of offense as that being the, the first response to, it was revealed that this center doesn't even do any inter direct interventions with people that are identified as having been radicalized. Um, they're more of a general center that's been uh, funded to, to develop things like poetry uh, about ISIS um, and podcasts. Um, so, you know, I think... Um, I don't know. I, 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 of course, I know. I, I just, I have, I have sat in room. I sat in a room with a woman in Toronto, Roy, about a month ago, and she um, had just come to Canada after having survived um, being sold dozens of times by ISIS. And she told me her story, and um, you know, I said to her, I said, "Do you want justice? Are you seeking justice?" She's like, yes, I'm seeking justice, but no one will listen. For anyone in Canada who has gone to join this group, they are complicit in her rape and in her the genocide of her people. And the world has to start understanding that our first and foremost responsibility is to bring these people to justice. I understand that, you know, there are efforts to make sure that we have to have efforts to make sure that people do not fall into radical ideology. But these are people who have consciously decided to go and take part in a group that has committed genocide. And as a, as a country, we're not 
standing behind our laws and making it our first priority to bring these people to justice, we're not just doing something wrong, we're failing justice in general. And that's something that the Prime Minister has to answer for. Yeah. Um, there are times when words fail when you try to describe what's going on because you know what's going on with other countries who are looking at this reality of their returning citizens who joined ISIS and they're they're reacting completely differently to the way this country's reacting. And I frankly uh, object to them being called fighters because that almost legitimizes what sure. they did. They were terrorists. They're terrorists. Yes, I agree. And you know what? Um, that's the insidiousness of what the prime minister has done, right? Because look, it's crept into my lexicon and it shouldn't be there. They're terrorists. Absolutely. And what do we, you know, people that commit acts of terror, I mean, how many, they need to be brought to justice. They need to be surveilled to make sure that they aren't keeping Canadians safe and they need to face the full force of Canadian justice. And, you know, it was just disgusting to me to sit in the House of Commons this week to watch the Liberals say, oh, well, Harper government, like trying to to deflect it somehow outside of their responsibility. When the laws that are in place there, we've put in place, and they've put in place bills to water those laws down. We're debating bills in the House of Commons, and bills that have passed the House of Commons under this government have watered down our ability to do that. That's up to them to answer for. And, you know, I don't think the Prime Minister has the courage to listen to the survivors of, of this violence. Because if he did, I don't know how somebody with the soul couldn't help but be affected. You know, I, I stood in the House of Commons this week and, uh, you know, sort of made this exact same case. Uh, Bill Blair, uh, one of the MPs, former, I think he was Toronto City Police Commissioner or something like that, you know, he said, well, we can't have tough words. Tough words don't do much. And I'm going, um, where, where are we on this as a country? Like, where, where are we? Like, if we're not really clear on, on, on where we are, no. in, our, in our language and in our actions, um, we're on a slippery slope to a path that I didn't want to be on. And um, it's one of the, it was one of those moments this week when you realize you probably have to fight, I probably have to fight harder than I thought I was going to have to. And I think that Canadians have to be very concerned about this, and they have to raise this issue uh, very loudly. People can't be silent on this. If we're not silent on this, we are complicit, and that's the problem. You know, Michelle, it, it occurred to me earlier in the week, and this is really why I wanted to talk about it this uh, this week, this weekend. Not just the exchange between Mr. Shearer and Mr. Trudeau, and Mr. Trudeau said, which was so so disturbing, but we all have mental pictures. We all have pictures in our mind's eye of acts that ISIS committed because we've seen them on television screens. We've seen what they've done. We know what they've done. And it's so horrific that to not just universally condemn the the terrorists and to completely support the victims and, and and have the victims front and center in in your in your in your consciousness, regardless of what your political philosophical persuasion is, is unthinkable to me. And yet you have people who will stand by the frankly um, banal chatter of Mr. Trudeau. But I'm I'm sure there's an agenda that goes with that. There has to be. He repeats himself too frequently. 
is is just uh, is just unthinkable. Do you have a couple of minutes longer? You can stay with us. Uh, sure. Okay, let me take a quick break. I want to come back and and ask you about something else that went on when you brought up the issue of uh, female genital mutilation in in Parliament and uh, where it's been removed from a guide for newcomers to Canada. But this is this was this has been a week of of confrontation in in our parliament over an issue where there should be unanimity. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Michelle, you brought up the issue of female genital mutilation in, in parliament. I think it's important that we find out what, what was the context and what happened. Sure. So a couple of things. Uh, right now, it's the 16 days to end gender or activism against gender-based violence. Um, so there's an, a whole bunch of issues under this particular heading. Uh, you know, gender-based violence is um, abhorrent, um, but female genital mutilation is a practice by which um, it's exactly what it says it is. It's, um, you know, it's essentially, it, it's more gruesome than talking about female circumcision. It's, it's removal of women's body parts. Uh, over 200 million women worldwide are currently living with this. And um, what we've been trying to do is ensure that this practice doesn't uh, come to Canada. This year, we've heard two things. First of all, that the CBSA, the Canadian Border Services Agency, is on alert for practice practitioners of FGM. Um, we know that they are coming to Canada. And we also know uh, this is also reported that uh, Canadian girls are being forced to go abroad to have the practice contained. So um, a few years back when we were still in government, we added language to Canada's citizenship guide that clearly outlines that this is a crime, that this is abhorrent and not tolerated in Canada, that this is a barbaric practice. Uh, earlier this year, the Liberals um, announced their intention to remove this language from the citizenship guide and indeed a leaked copy of the Citizenship Guide uh, was found to have this language removed. Uh, so during the 16 days of uh, action against gender-based violence, we're calling on the Prime Minister to reverse this decision. Uh, you know, he's uh, very loudly on the international stage uh, proclaimed that, uh, you know, he's a feminist and that he supports women's rights. So I find it completely out of lockstep with those words for him to remove um language from a document that really... Uh, Michelle, I'm, I'm sorry, we only have about 20 seconds before we have to sure. break, so go ahead, please. I'll just finish quickly. Uh, we want him to reverse this decision. Um, this is, to me, it's crazy. It, it, information is power. Women understanding what their rights are, especially in this country, is important. And we have a petition that has over 14,000 signatures in a very short period of time to get him to reverse this decision. Okay. And we'll be pressing hard for him on that. Thank you so much for joining us today, Michelle. Take care. All the best. Michelle Rempel, Conservative Member of Parliament from Calgary. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Ralph Conacher is the co-founder of Democracy Watch in this country. It's been a long time since I've spoken with Duff. Great to have him on the show. And uh, Democracy Watch wants the Federal Ethics Commissioner, Mary Dawson, um, do you want to investigate it or do you want an inquiry, Duff? Great to have you back on the show. What is it exactly that you want done? Uh, what Democracy Watch is calling for, and, and uh, thanks, Roy, it is great to be back on the show with you and, and talking with you. Uh, what we're calling for is 
uh, for the same kind of performance audit that the Auditor General did of the uh, former Integrity Commissioner. Uh, her name was Christiane. We met. That was done back in 2010, and uh, it was audit, audit of a very negligently weak enforcement record that the Integrity Commissioner um, was showing, and the Ethics Commissioner and also the Federal Lobbying Commissioner both have similar negligently weak enforcement records, and uh, we think the Auditor General should take a look. Yeah, and I looked at your release on uh, looking at the Ethics Commissioner, and you point out that since her appointment in 2007, Ms. Dawson has cleared 95% of individuals accused of unethical behavior or unethical acts, and uh, the Trudeau government has also issued three consecutive six-month extensions of her contract, each worth $100,000, which makes you ask who you're responsible to. But at the same time, she also wants to speak to the finance minister about his stock trades in 2015. Yeah, so in terms of her record, she's also made 218 secret rulings uh, where she's let people off the hook without really explaining in most cases. Um, she started to in her more recent annual reports, but before 2012, um, she didn't explain. Uh, she would just have lines in a report like, I had 30 complaints last year, only two of them were valid. And that's it. That's all she would say without justifying why the other 28 had been dismissed. So 218 secret rulings. And and uh, total uh, overall let 95% of people off the hook. And she's essentially serving at the pleasure of the Trudeau cabinet right now while she's investigating uh, Prime Minister Trudeau for the gift that the Aga Khan gave him of the trip to the Bahamas right. a year ago, and also uh, Finance Minister Morneau over his uh, shares in his family company in the conflicts of interest. She's in a biased position right now. She doesn't have a job beyond the end of December unless the Trudeau cabinet hands her another sole source contract yeah, that is disturbing. six months worth $100,000. That is disturbing, Duff. And the lobbying commissioner uh, is on her way out, finally. They just named a new one uh, this week. But she's been in the same position. The lobbying commissioner hasn't made a ruling, a public ruling, since the liberals were elected. We have five complaints into her of clear violations that lobbyists have uh, made in terms of putting the Liberal cabinet ministers in conflicts of interest, including, and, and MPs in conflicts of interest, including a complaint filed in May of 2016. We're still waiting. She hasn't really done anything in the last two years in terms of ruling on complaints on high-profile situations of lobbyists helping uh, with Liberal uh, fundraising events. And, it, and they've been giving her a $100,000 contract every six months um, and renewing it. Those are all renewable contracts. So Finally, we've got her out of the way. She's go going to be gone, but there should still be an audit of the lobbying commissioner. If she had a negligently weak record, the Auditor General would be able to set some standards with that audit for the new commissioner to ensure that there is effective enforcement going forward. Yeah, the optics are all wrong. Very bad, rife with conflicts of interest, just conflicts of interest on top of conflicts of interest. So who would uh, be the individual or uh, what... What organization within Parliament or wherever would be the, uh, the, the, the determinant as to whether or not there would be a, an inquiry into the work and the, the performance of the Ethics Commissioner? It's the Auditor General. Um, so Auditor it comes General. directly from the Auditor General? Yep. The Auditor General decides that directly, as uh, the former Auditor General Sheila Fraser did back in 2010 uh, when she decided to audit the Integrity Commissioner. It's called a performance audit. So you're not looking for waste. What uh, the Auditor General is looking for is 
what are reasonable expectations in terms of how long it takes you to rule on a complaint? Um, and uh, what kind of uh, enforcement activities are you doing? Are you doing anything to enforce the law? Because, you know, the lobbying commissioner, the ethics commissioner, they don't do any audits of anyone. Well, how are you going to catch people, you know? Audits are basic to law enforcement. You know, no one, no one speeding down the highway would ever be caught unless there were police that did audits by sitting there and measuring people's speed. Mm-hmm. There hasn't been an audit of any MP or any uh, lobbyist that, uh, in terms of trying to find lobbyists that are not registered. She does some audits of lobbyists who are registered, but they're not the ones who are the problem. The ones that are the problem are the ones doing secret illegal lobbying. And... Um, and the ethics commissioner trusts every cabinet minister and government official to tell her the truth on their financial statements and to tell her the truth about any conflicts of interest they have. She doesn't do any audits. So that's not proper enforcement. No, no, it's not. I mean, it's not even close. And it's good that you're alerting us to this. And yeah, the fact so that there was such a high percentage, a high number of cases that she decided without providing any information as to why she decided the yeah, way she did or how she decided. And that's why the liberals have kept them around because they're confirmed lapdogs. So, you know, both of their terms were up in the, uh, in the end of June of 2016, and the Liberals have been playing a game since, um, saying, oh, we can't f- find qualified people to fill these positions. So they've kept them around for another 18 months. And during that 18 months, uh, the Ethics Commissioner has not found one Liberal guilty of violating the ethics rules. Yeah, def- he found two Conservatives guilty. But no Liberals. Yeah, but no liberals. And the lobbying commissioner has had five complaints, uh, uh, three of them filed yeah. mo- a year or more ago, and she hasn't made any rulings in, okay. the, in the two years. We'll talk again soon, Duff. Thank you so much for the time today. Thank you. Duff Conacher, and it's democracywatch.ca. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Freedom of expression, freedom of speech, freedom of expression, freedom of speech. In the United States, it's freedom of speech. In Canada, it's freedom of expression. Well, almost. Because we do not have the same kind of freedom of speech or freedom of expression that Americans have. In the United States, say whatever you wish whatever you wish, and it's okay. You are, maybe not be okay, but you're protected under their constitution. In Canada, not so much. We do have freedom of expression constitutionally enshrined, but when I read uh, David David Butt's uh, op-ed piece in the Globe and Mail in January of 2015, um, David writes in part, the Canadian hate law still clearly curtails free expression, but the Supreme Court has not struck it down. Why? Four main reasons. First, our Constitution protects not only free expression, but multiculturalism and equality as well. So to read the Constitution holistically, we cannot permit one protected freedom to undermine other rights and freedoms enjoying equal status. So... David, it's great to have you back on the show. Always good to speak with you, criminal lawyer in Toronto. And you point out in, in the in the op-ed piece that really when people talk about freedom of expression, it's normally limited to university professors, and it's a dry conversation that would cause most people to tune out. But not so much these days. Freedom of expression, freedom of speech, hugely important, loudly debated, 
and people are taking sides. So give us a bit of a, of a background, or I took what, what I read here out of context from your op-ed piece. But let's start at the beginning, what, what freedom of expression in, in, in Canada is, how it's constitutionally permitted, but where the limitations start. Sure. Uh, it's uh, Generally speaking, uh, almost any kind of expression is, um, is permitted. And you don't have to agree with it, you don't have to like it, you can be offended by it, and it's still protected in Canada. There is a narrow category of speech that will be regulated. For example, uh, obviously the libel and slander laws are still in existence. So you can't, you know, say something maliciously false that destroys someone's reputation. Uh, and th- that has to do with, again, respecting the boundaries of a different person. It's sort of the verbal equivalent of saying, you can swing your fist wherever you want, but you can't swing it where it hits someone else's face. So uh, you, you can talk, and if it comes to libeling or slandering someone, that crosses a line. Another line, which the Supreme Court has drawn, that's what I've addressed in my op-ed piece, is what is called hate speech. So it's the deliberate, the willful promotion of hatred against an identifiable group. And uh, the Supreme Court has said that that, too, can be regulated, although there's a lot of uh, hoops you have to jump through before the government can suppress that kind of speech. So we have very broad freedom, but with some important uh, limitations. Okay, now the second paragraph in your op-ed piece uh, reads this way. The discussion in Canada on freedom of expression so far fails to address the unique Canadian approach to freedom of expression and thus fails to ask a crucial Canadian question. Does freedom of expression, as legally defined in Canada, provide the right tools for expressing challenges in a fragmented and largely angry 21st century social media world? And I find that to be particularly relevant. We, 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 we love to say that we have the right to say whatever we wish whenever we, whenever we wish. But we are colliding with, as you point out, increasingly angry, frustrated, polarized points of view. And that's when freedom of expression starts to cross over, and we've all seen it on, on social media, crosses over into what the Supreme Court would probably say, you're either crossing the line or you're very close to it. So yeah. do, we, do we have true freedom of, of speech in this country? I know you said there's, a, there's an acid test and it has to be met and all the points have to be met. We can talk about that before you can be charged. Yeah. But is, maybe I should ask you this way. Is our freedom of expression uh, being challenged? Are we, are we finding parameters narrowed when it comes to freedom of, ex- of expression? And I think of George, Dr. Jordan Peterson of the University of Toronto, who will be a guest on the show uh, tomorrow and was with us last weekend, who was vilified by, by many, uh, considered to be a hero defending freedom of speech by others. Yes. And uh, I, I think those are, are really important debates, and, and uh, from my perspective at least, they have to be able to unfold fully. In other words, people can't be curtailed in, in what they say on one side or another of important issues like that. It, it's also important to remember uh, that what the Constitution addresses is government suppression of speech. So if university students think that a professor should do X and the professor thinks that he or she should do Y, uh, there's no government involvement there. Uh, so the uh, Constitution 
actually doesn't play much of a role because it's it's about limiting the government's power to charge someone for hate speech and so on. And where we get some of these more intense debates are in the non-governmental sphere. So, you know, we can talk about, for example, gender-neutral pronouns uh, and vigorous debate on whether people should or should not be using them and so on. But what's really important to keep in mind is that there's no government no provincial government, no federal government, no municipal government is stepping in and saying you either have to or or shouldn't uh, use gender-neutral pronouns. If they did, that would be a very serious violation of uh, freedom of expression. So that is managed by the parties involved? Yes, yeah. There are, you know, as, as I like to say, there are many speech communities. So we have a national speech community and there are national laws that limit freedom of expression, but only to the very limited extent, for example, of hate speech or libel and slander. But there can be smaller speech communities. So what is appropriate to say inside your own home? Uh, you know, can you drop the F-bomb in your own home? You know, people debate that vigorously. Can you drop the F-bomb in class? Again, people debate that vigorously. Can you drop the F-bomb on campus? So these are all different speech communities and to a certain extent, each one of those speech communities has to work out their own rules of how they will talk to each other. Why have people started to become careful about what they say? And I'm not talking about people who are going to say something that's clearly and obviously uh, to, intended to be hateful towards someone else. But people are, are cautious because they feel that they may be politically incorrect, they feel they're like they're stepping over a line. They don't want to be. They don't want to be corrected. They don't want to be challenged. And 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 my my experience is that people will sometimes challenge something I say on the air. And I know very well that I'm well within my rights. Well within the law. I'm not. I'm not violating anybody's uh, 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 constitutional rights by what I say. But the feeling is you must be because I disagree with you. And so I want you not only to control what you think, but I want you to control what you say. Right, and it and goes beyond just Roy Green or David Butt. It, it that I think that affects many people across this country. We we police what we think, and then we secondarily, and perhaps more concerningly, police what we say. Right, and and you know uh, my own thinking, and as you know, and as, as you've said, I I do some writing for the Globe and and uh, speak on on media, and I get reaction from that, and and you know uh, to some extent I'm like you, Roy, when. Uh, People don't like what I what I say. They tend to say, "Well, I should just shut up," uh, and that misses the point. Um, you know, as as you well know, the important role that you play too, uh, fostering debate about important issues is in itself a good thing. So the fact of disagreement is actually a positive thing. Mm-hmm. Too many people get challenged by the fact that there's disagreement out there. Disagreement's actually a good thing. As you work through issues and see different points of view. Everybody benefits. So saying things that are disagreeable to others actually is not a bad thing. If it gets hateful, sure, that crosses the line. But I think we all have to be uh, aware of the value of disagreement itself and not be afraid of it and not try to shut it down. One of the things that I've said to people periodically, and it upsets them when I say it, but I think there's, there's merit in what I say. When someone is attacked for what they're saying, it generally means that the person who's doing the attacking doesn't know enough about the subject to be able to debate it. Well, that, that's right. And, and 
I, I often uh, will share that view, depending on the nature of, the, of what the person says. Uh, you know, don't shoot the messenger. Yeah. Address the message. And if you have some valid uh, criticisms of the message, you know, let's listen to them and let's hash those out because that's really important. But if all you're doing is shooting the messenger, you're frankly not contributing to a very productive debate at all. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Okay, I guess there are there are paths, or at least we have, there are boundaries we can cross when we tweet, hey, David, on, on oh, freedom of expression. Yes, uh, certainly uh, what the courts have said very clearly is that uh, all kinds of public expression like that on social media, traditional media, uh, can be... Uh, published expression that that can lead to uh, difficulties if it does cross legal lines. All right. Now, in the column, in the first paragraph, you write. Let me just let me just read it, the paragraph, because it's. I have to have the context here. Freedom of expression in Canada normally is a dry legal concept, sporadically explored by law professors in dense papers and taken for granted by everyone else. Until now, if freedom of expression got any attention at all, it was fleeting and superficial like a bumper sticker on a passing car. The terrorist attacks in France and their aftermath changed all that, giving freedom of expression an extended tenure in the limelight and popular consciousness. So the terrorist attacks in France um, made, the, made the difference. Now, they were predicated, at least the, the terrorists argued, that they were predicated on Charlie Hebdo's cartoons. Uh, if this were Canada, how would that scenario have played it out? Not as far as a terrorist attack is concerned, but how would the courts have decided about those Charlie Hebdo or Charlie Hebdo cartoons? Yeah, it, certainly it's controversial, and and uh, you know I'm not saying anything about the content, which you know, depending on your religious affiliations, you may or may not find more or less offensive. But just strictly from a legal perspective. Uh, my own view is that those those cartoons would not have been problematic legally here in Canada. Uh, the um, you know a, a satirical cartoon is making a point about politics. Uh, a satirical cartoon also has artistic aspects to it. And what our courts have said is when you're talking about something as important as politics in a democratic state, and when you're engaged in artistic expression, the boundaries are are broader. And we have to be very careful before we start curtailing either political or artistic expression. So, therefore, the Charlie Hebdo cartoons, even though they would be offensive to many, would not be illegal in Canada. Gets a little complicated. Yes, it does. To understand. Uh, yes, yes. And, and there's, there's so many different ways of expressing yourself. Yeah. And depending on what you're saying, uh, the courts will be more or less tolerant of it. For example... Uh, again, to use the, the the notion of a of a common swear word, uh, you know, nobody's going to be prosecuted for hate crime for using a common swear word, but you sure can't say it on the radio. So, depending on the context and what's going on, speech may be more or less tolerable. So, you uh, you wrote this, and. So now, of course, I'm looking for the, or here it is, the line. The courts have said that even if a hate speech prohibition is never used, it has symbolic value. Yes. And uh, the, the court said that in a case in which uh, the person prosecuted was um, 
uh, disseminating anti-Semitic sort of Nazi kind of propaganda. And uh, th- what the court said is, is we have learned historically, you know, coming through the, uh, you know, the, the terrible 1930s and 40s uh, in Europe, that uh, if we don't take steps to regulate how civilly we treat each other, including how we talk to each other, extremes can can unfold, as as did in you know mid twentieth century in Germany. Mm-hmm. And so, sending that message, the symbolic value of hate speech, is that no, we're not going to go down that road again. And even if they never use it, that message is out there because it's embodied in our laws. So there can be some really important symbolic value about tolerance and inclusiveness uh, in uh, Canada as framed by our laws. Um, David, can you give me an example or give us an example of, uh, of, of I'm trying to think of a, of a sentence or an expression that would not be hate speech unless you add one or two words. And maybe that not be, may not be fair to ask you that. Uh, what I was thinking was you, you could say to someone and be within the bounds of the law or freedom of expression and not violate the hate speech aspect. If I were to say so-and-so, so-and-so is an absolute blankety-blank, blinkety-blink blump, and that's okay. But if I say so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so is an absolute blinkety-blink, blankety-blump, blump, blump, and then add uh, a cultural, an ethnic, a religious component in my attack and insult, that's when I've crossed the line. Is that, is that, uh, is that yes. correct? Yes, yeah, the uh, the law is directed at the willful promotion of hatred of identifiable groups. So whether those would be groups defined by gender, uh, so hatred of, of women as a, as a group, uh, particular religions, whether it be Jewish people or Muslim people or Christian people, or uh, the, the law is really focused on generating discriminatory hatred against people uh, of an identifiable group. So if you're just venting about, you know, my next-door neighbor is a so-and-so, mm-hmm. you're not engaged... How do you know my next-door neighbor? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I understand. I get it. David, it's always great speaking with you. Thank, thank you so much. Freedom of expression, freedom of speech in the United States, freedom of expression here, differently applied but fundamentally the same idea. Thanks, David. My pleasure. Take care. David Butt criminal lawyer in Toronto. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.